Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole, or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. That's C-O-N-C-E-R-N-I-N-G-H-I-M.com. Welcome back to our study of the Gospel according to Matthew. We are nearing the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and we will be considering chapter 7, particularly verses 1 through 12. Now, the previous material has powerfully challenged us in the areas of giving, prayer, and fasting to do it all as unto the Lord and not to be seen by others. And before that, chapter 5 has exhorted us to be complete or perfect in the way we deal with other people, knowing that our righteousness must be more than skin deep, but it has to actually come from our heart. Thus, the Lord Jesus' main body of ethical instruction in the Gospel of Matthew centers around the themes of truly loving others, chapter 5, and relying upon our Heavenly Father, chapter 6. In chapter 7, we're now nearing the end. Uh, There will be an ending section starting in verse 13 in which the Lord Jesus talks about the absolute importance of actually doing what he says. Uh, But what we have here in 7, 1 through 12, is not just a random couple extra thoughts that he wanted to throw in here towards the end. And sometimes that's the uh, suggestion that's given. But as I read this text, think about how this fits in with the themes covered so far in the Sermon on the Mount, starting in verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will be able to see the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now our text in front of us has two main sections. The first one is about showing mercy in the way that we deal out judgment. The second is about receiving mercy from our Heavenly Father. We could even think about the two big ideas that were just discussed uh, in the introduction to our episode. The bit about not judging hypocritically, but lovingly, interacting with those who have sinned, corresponds well with chapter 5 and its emphasis on loving one another, even those who have wronged us, and doing so in an unhypocritical or complete, that is a from-the-heart kind of way. And the bit about asking, of course, corresponds well with chapter 6 and the emphasis on committing our needs to the Lord and trusting his provision. Notice that this whole section is summed up in verse 12. Therefore, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. 
And this gives us a kind of clue as to how these units are related. They both stem from the need to act based on the way we know we should by thinking about what we would want others to do to us. We would not want to be treated harshly in the final judgment. We'll want mercy to rule the day then. And this means that we should interact with other people in mercy. We know already what is right because we know how we would want to be treated. And furthermore, we know what is right because we have had parents or because we are parents. We know that we ought to give generously to our children and that too should inform our theology about how God deals with us. Now let's begin by considering the first unit on judgment. Matthew 7.1 is quickly becoming the most famous verse in all the Bible, at least in our culture, where it seems like uh, so-called tolerance is the word of our time. Sometimes, for example, this verse is said when discussing controversial issues, say like homosexuality. People say things like, who am I to judge what another person does in his or her bedroom? But Matthew 7.1 can hardly mean refrain from making ethical decisions. Matthew 7.1 is, after all, the words of Jesus. And read in context of who Jesus is, his own actions clarify the scope of what this verse means. Much of everything Jesus says is, well, some kind of judging in the sense of calling one course of action right and another course of action wrong. This verse is clearly hyperbole, a literary device, which we have seen used very often in the Sermon on the Mount, exaggeration for effect. The three uh, sections that will conclude the sermon, discussed in a later episode, uh, leave no room for the possibility that someone could just not be judged. In other words, 7-1, on the surface, completely taken out of context, makes it seem like uh, if a person is concerned about the final judgment, well, just rest easy. The answer is, don't judge anyone, and then you can disregard everything else difficult in the Sermon on the Mount and all of its high moral standards. Instead, notice that the disciples must still make decisions and uh, do surgery in 7-5. They need to then remove the speck that is from their brother's eye. The account does end in the disciples taking the speck out of someone else's eye. The point is that we are to do so unhypocritically. First, we evaluate ourselves, then we can speak truth into someone else's life. Now, this is a brief section on a very difficult subject. What does it look like to remove someone's sin and to critique them? Now, we receive more revelation on this in Scripture. In fact, the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 18, will talk about the process of someone sins against you. First, you go to him alone, then you bring someone else, and so on. And if you're unfamiliar with that passage, I'd point you to uh, Matthew chapter 18. I think we should also read the command about removing the speck from our brother's eye in light of verse 12 and the instruction to treat others as we would want to be treated. This is a good practical advice. When it does come time to confront someone, we should think about the way we would want to be confronted. I'd like someone to think the best about me. I would want someone to hear my side of the story, talk to me in private, and so on. And if that's how I'd like the plank to be taken out of my own eye or the speck to be taken out of my own eye, that's how I should remove the speck from my brother's eye. Now, verse 6, uh, this bit about uh, casting your pearls before pigs or swine, is famously difficult to understand. What in the world is going on here? Uh, one interpretation can be found in the Didache, uh, the late first century Christian document, which uses this saying as proof that communion should not be given to unbelievers. Don't give what is holy uh, 
to dogs. Needless to say, this interpretation doesn't fit our context very well. In fact, to me, it is so far removed that it makes me wonder if the Didache is actually citing the Gospel of Matthew or if he's just getting it from somewhere else. But though this verse doesn't have to do with communion, what it actually does mean is harder to figure out. One of the key issues is if it is to be connected with the bit before or the bit after, with 1 through 5 or with 7 through 11. Now, if it's a kind of addendum to the bit about confronting someone else, then the holy things are the word of instruction or rebuke. It's a way of saying, yes, we do have a responsibility to provide correction, but not to everyone. There are some people on whom we're just going to waste our time. In fact, more than that, to rebuke them will just make life difficult for us. Now, the difficulty of this explanation is that it doesn't adequately deal with why Jesus describes it as holy things. I suppose you could think about our words of instruction as holy things, but that seems like a bit of a stretch. Alternatively, this saying could also be understood as connected with what follows, which talks about giving our prayers to God. This view was defended by a scholar named Stassen. His explanation is that um, Jesus is saying that hope should not come from, say, the Roman government. That will only destroy them. Hope only truly comes from God. He is the one we are to look to for our daily bread, for the good things that we need. Uh, another scholar, Nolan, points out that the holy things, of course, are things that rightly belong to God. That's what makes them holy. You give holy things to God. Giving them to anyone else would be, by comparison, like giving them to a dog or a pig. Now, there are a couple of variations on this interpretation. Uh, the holy things could be general, and that's the way Nolan takes it, or it could be specifically prayer, the way Stassen takes it. Thus, uh, this is a command to give all that we are and have to God. Giving ourselves, being a slave of money, for example, will only ruin ourselves in the end. So now, unfortunately, this is one of those times when a difficult text remains, well, difficult, and none of the proposed solutions clearly emerges as the winner. If it did, then everyone would just take that view. Although I think something along the lines of Stassen and Noland is the most likely. Now, the next bit of text turns us to the bit of prayer. It comes to us in a three-part parallelism. A, B, C, A, B, C. Ask, seek, knock. Everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. Knocks and it will be opened. We then have a defense of this statement. God is better than our comparatively evil fathers, so it can be expected to at least respond to our requests. But what kind of requests are in view here? It's true that there are statements that suggest that God will give us whatever we ask for, and each one needs to be contextually understood. Here, daily provision seems to be in mind. This was the subject in view at the end of chapter 6. Our Heavenly Father knows the things that we need, like to eat and to wear, and he will add those things to us. Uh, chapter 7, verses 9 to 10, uh, reference the two staple items in a diet at that time, bread and fish. The topic in view, then, is the basic necessities of life. But even then, with getting what we ask for, uh, we need to be careful. Matthew himself will record Jesus asking for his cup to pass, but of, of course that's not granted. In fact, uh, the mention of bread again is interesting. It links us with the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, and also reminds us of the temptation scene. Now, it sure does seem like Jesus would have thought to ask God for food. But God has led him into the desert, 
and God is the one who has allowed him to experience incredible hunger. So even with the clarification that the things that people are asking, seeking, and knocking for are basic necessities, we still have to allow for exceptions. In fact, to extend the analogy further than Matthew has it, we could similarly reason from our experience from human fathers. Now, I have three young children right now, and as a dad, I hear a lot of asking, seeking, and knocking. And oftentimes, I'm happy to give them what they want. But a lot of other times, the answer is no. And the reason I give them things is because it's in their best interest. And there are times, however, that I know that what they're asking for is not actually in their best interest. So in my love for them, uh, I withhold from them what they're asking for. So to put a twist on Jesus' sayings, we could similarly argue, if you then, who are evil, know how not to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven? There are, of course, some times in which we know God will answer our prayers. Uh, Craig Keener wisely observes, uh, quote, Contextually, the supreme object of seeking is the kingdom. Though disciples ask God to supply their material needs, they do not seek them zealously. The door to be opened is the gate of salvation, referencing 7.13, end quote. Now, this is in line with the way Luke phrases it in uh, 6.13, which reads, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Matthew has it more generally, but of course, that would envelop the idea of salvation as well. God has sent his son to save his people from their sins and paid that ransom by dying on the cross. After paying such a price, of course, he would be eager to give it. He's no miser. This is an important perspective, especially as we will discuss in our next episode some pretty harsh statements of Jesus. We must take seriously the reality of judgment and listen carefully to the warnings Jesus gives regarding those who think they are in but are actually out. Yet in all of this, uh, warnings of judgment, God is still our Heavenly Father. He loves His children. He's rooting for them all along. And His desire is to give them the good things of the kingdom that He has in store. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit emmaus.edu partner.